from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service. A podcast that tells the stories of the public servants responsible for our government's most significant achievements. I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein Kircher. At the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, international border closures, flight cancellations, and lockdowns stranded thousands of Americans around the world on cruise ships, in remote cities in the Andes Mountains, even in the Sahara Desert. Today, we're talking to the man who led the team that brought those stranded Americans home. Ian Brownlee is the Acting Assistant Secretary for Consul Affairs at the State Department. Last year, he created and managed a multi-agency task force, the Interagency COVID Repatriation Team, that rescued more than 100,000 U.S. citizens stranded in nearly 150 countries due to COVID-19. Working with colleagues across government and more than 400 State Department staff, Ian kept track of Americans who needed help, navigated complex international regulations and travel restrictions, coordinated with U.S. embassies and foreign governments, and much more. During a time of global crisis and uncertainty, Ian and his team led one of the largest repatriation efforts in U.S. history and acted decisively to save lives. For more on his remarkable act of public service, let's hear from Ian himself. Ian, welcome to Profiles in Public Service. I am looking forward to it. So many of our listeners may not realize it, but the State Department works to bring Americans back from abroad to the United States every year due to all kinds of crises. But usually repatriations like this happen in one country or one region or in a pretty contained set of numbers. And when did you first realize that this was going to be a completely different situation than any other previous repatriation effort that you'd worked on? It was probably about March 16th of 2020. Uh, of course, we brought folks home from China. We were, we'd brought folks off the Diamond Princess in, in Yokohama, Japan. Then all of a sudden, that middle week of March, we suddenly thought, oh, look at this. We're dealing with Morocco and we're dealing with Peru. Where else? And it just unfolded from there. We realized that, you know, you're exactly right. That regional model simply wasn't going to work anymore. This was fast becoming worldwide. All that being said, were there any lessons that you'd learned from previous efforts that you were able to apply here? It was a completely different kind of circumstance, but we, we've done this before in different contexts. Absolutely. Uh, We've done this before in many contexts. And the way this works in the State Department is there's a part of the State Department called crisis management and strategy. And their job is, as I think, is to build the framework of a task force. Uh, Working with, in this case, working with me, working with a task force lead. And we, CMS helped us build that. They had the technology, they had the the physical space, because initially we were actually meeting face-to-face. Uh, that didn't last very long. Uh, but they also, they had the experience. They said, you probably want this bureau and this bureau and this bureau also in the meeting. And the essential uh, team that had to be in there was my bureau, the Bureau of Consular Affairs, and specifically our Office of Overseas Citizen Services. So right from the beginning, we started throwing everybody physically into one room and said, hmm, social distancing, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. So one benefit to having that really incredible breadth of experience that you mentioned from the task force is that they know not only how we've done it before and the process and the mechanisms, they can probably also give advice on 
here's actually where we don't have any history and we need to think out of the box. Um, talk about what that was like in, in this situation. Well, a great example there is <clears throat> dealing with the huge number of cruise ships around the world that were suddenly floating on the high seas. You know, we had dealt with crises on cruise ships. I mean, everybody with a, with a long memory remembers the, the horrors of the Achille Laro. But suddenly dealing at the height of cruise season, dealing with dozens of dozens of ships with tens or hundreds of thousands of passengers and crew on board was something unprecedented. And we were having to work with local governments and national governments and potential ports of call so that they could go ashore and offload, in our case, U.S. citizens trying to return home, or even in some cases, just uh, U.S. citizens or other passengers who had unrelated health issues. Cruise passengers tend to be a bit older, uh, and so it's not uncommon for them to, to suffer the, you know, the infirmities, the indignities of age. And I remember we were trying to work with the Chilean authorities to get permission to send ships in there that had previously been, been cruising in Antarctica. Uh, and, and this just went on and on and on. And finally, we brought a bunch of them back to the United States. Others, we got permission for them to put in into places like uh, Toulon in, in southern France from where they could fly home. So that was something unprecedented. Incredible. And Ian, clearly the State Department had to make some complicated arrangements to bring Americans back to the U.S. Do you have a favorite or a most surprising example of how you transported people? I guess the, the one many folks have heard of is sending a boat up the Amazon to go get some folks who were in Iquitos, uh, a, a place up the Amazon where they did have Wi-Fi, but they did not have any other way of getting out other than by boat. So we, we, uh, we made arrangements to send a boat up to bring those folks out of there. Another one uh, in Peru we had a lot of folks who had been up hiking the Inca Trail and were up at very high elevation, which presented a, a, a special challenge for us because landing at the super high airports requires special certifications for the pilots. And we, you couldn't just go out and hire you know, Bob's Airline or American Airlines to go do this because they didn't necessarily have the right certified pilots to go in and do it. So that presented a special challenge. Um, one was low tech, one was very high tech. Yeah, and just very like very niche expertise. It sounds like that you needed, and you know these are just two examples, right? Can you give us a sense of the scope? So, in terms of how many people were you attempting to bring home, and across how many countries? Well, that of course was the very first question we asked ourselves when we asked our posts around the world. How many people do you estimate, how many U.S. citizens do you estimate are in your country and will want to come out? And we can't just look at the records we have of people who have registered with us because a great many of those people are, are dual nationals or are expatriates. They are at home. So you might have somebody who was living in Lima, U.S. citizen registered with, with us in, in Lima, who had no intention of flying back to the United States because their home is in Lima. So it was, it was very much a matter of coming up with educated guesses as to how many tourists might be in a particular country. And, and, and actually, Peru is a good example. <clears throat> the, the very first estimate, we said there could be up to 5,000 U.S. citizens seeking to leave Peru. I remember we crossed the 10,000 mark, and I think we went significantly above that out of Peru. Because it was just it was such a popular place for tourists, you know, whether it was the jungle, the mountains, you know, what have you. Uh, it's a... It's a place with a lot of U.S. expats, a place where a lot of people go to learn Spanish. 
And they just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. Wow. And uh, eventually, as I said, we got up to two or even three times our initial estimate. That's incredible. So you, we talked about the task force that you were leading. And just to make sure our listeners understand, this was not only of State Department personnel and staff, but had to work closely with Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, Transportation, CDC, and I'm sure I'm missing some. What was it like to be managing and working daily with this large multi-agency team who has lots of different assets and interests and approaches to crises like this, particularly when most of these employees were working remotely? You're absolutely right. I, I think you missed one or two, but we, we needn't go into that. Um, yeah, it was what we were doing was meeting at least twice a day. I guess initially we were meeting three times a day by by telephone. 6.45 a.m. midday and then 6.45 p.m. and just hearing what the issues of the moment were. And of course, they would tend to carry through the day and through the night. Um, and so when we were trying to put together a complicated flight out of Colombia, for example, uh, in that the case I'm thinking of, the flight, they ended up being, the, the U.S. citizens ended up being brought out on a DOD backhaul. A DOD flight had gone down there. They had space available. They said, sure, we'll carry U.S. citizens home. But it turned out that they it was a special operations flight, and they were going into a special operations base in a remote location in a southern state. We'll just leave it at that. And all of a sudden, we think, well, dang, what are we going to do with this hundred and whatever it was U.S. citizens who are suddenly going to be landing in the, you know, the piney woods of wherever it was? And, and it became this challenge to, we, we ended up, pulling in people from our passport agency in that area and saying, Please, you need to go charter a bus <laughs> and convince the base commander to let you on so you can pick these people up and bring them out. So it was things like that. It was just, you know, a lot of people working stuff on the fly. But while in one of those those three meetings I mentioned, all the, you know, we had we had the DOD people on there, we had the FAA people on there, we had the HHS people who were responsible for receiving these, you know, giving them support once they arrived back in the United States. We had the CDC people who needed to monitor them for possible transmission of disease, and I'm probably missing some. But because we were all coming together three times a day, we could make it work. So this actually leads perfectly to my next question, which is, how did you keep track of everything that was going on in all of these different countries without having a really significant on-the-ground presence. We obviously have our embassies and consulates, but it's not as though that they had touch points across every single square inch of every country Americans were in. How did both they stay up to date and how did you keep it all uh, coordinated? I'm, I'm envisioning a giant map with little dots on it, and that's probably far more complex than that. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to go back to those people I mentioned at the very beginning, crisis management and support and the Office of Overseas Citizen Services. They really were essential to this, and particularly the Office of Overseas Citizen Services. They have desk officers responsible for every country in the world. So those people became the initial point of contact with, with the embassies downstream. But also what this meant was that we, uh, I'm sorry, OCS, Overseas Citizen Services, basically stopped doing anything except this. Uh, you know, from the, the, the 17th of March or whatever it was to about the 4th of April, they shifted their 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 responsibilities and efforts entirely to tracking what was happening overseas and reporting back to the task force on what likely numbers were for people coming out of various places. And then we would have the embassies were doing the same sort of thing. 
they were, you know, political sections kind of shut down, econ sections kind of shut down, and everybody had to try to work with the consular section to identify how you could move people from one place to another. Because as you know, a lot of countries instituted just complete shutdowns of internal movement. So whether it's in Peru or India, we could lay on flights, but if people had to get from wherever they were to you know, to the to whether it was Lima or New Delhi, they had to get there somehow. So we had to have our embassies overseas negotiating with local governments and in many cases, local uh, provincial governments to convince them to let busloads of Americans come through uh, or to allow us to light, lay on uh, short haul flights to move people from from one place to you know, the international airport. So it really was it was an all hands effort by the country teams at the embassies overseas and by our folks here in Washington, just pulling on that panoply of resources we mentioned earlier. This is an incredible logistical operation. Yeah, it really sounds like it. And especially, you know, Ian, as you're talking about how each country may even have its own way of doing things or own rules or decisions they've made. And with you, you know, connecting to the task force three times a day, you also had to balance interest of other agencies, Congress and the public. And this is all very high pressure, very real, very of the moment, um, ever changing, I'm sure. And of course, there were questions of whether travel and returning home was even safe. So how did you keep all of those internal and external stakeholders updated on the progress that your team was making? Keeping the members of Congress updated, obviously, was a matter of, of, of first priority and intense interest. So even prior to the the beginning of the task force, we, the State Department and other agencies, the U.S. government, have been traveling up to the Hill to brief members, whether House of Representatives or Senate. And you know, in my 32 years, I've never seen such well-attended briefings. Coming home one day and, and telling my wife, I said, you know, I think every Democrat, bear in mind, this is like February of 2020, Bear in mind that I think every Democrat who's running for the presidential nomination was in the <laughs> You know, Cory Brooker, Kamala Harris, everybody was in the So, you know, so that was what we were doing initially. And then when that stopped around whatever it was, the 10th or 12th of March, we, we just continued, but it continued virtually. And in fact, that was a bit of a saving grace because we could be more efficient. We could talk to more people more quickly. I remember that very first weekend, um, it was, you know, something like an 18 hour day. And, but I, I just, you know, I would I'd finish one briefing. I'd say, I'm sorry, sir, I need to go. I need to be talking to Senator so-and-so in 30 seconds. Okay, fine. Hang up, click the next button, start talking to the next person. If we had tried to do that in person, it simply wouldn't have worked. It, it was, it would have been very inefficient. So yeah, we could talk to a lot of people. I could talk to a lot of people and get a lot of criticism, and get a lot of hard questions. But that sort of guided us as to what we needed to be doing to provide the information the members needed so they could be responsive to their constituents. And, you know, it, it turned out to be a, a useful, maybe cooperative is not quite the right word, but <laughs> symbiotic relationship, I'm not sure. And then, of course, we were, talk we were talking to the press as well. And whether that was going into the State Department's press bullpen, uh, talking to the New York Times or whatnot, uh, and, and a bunch of us were doing that. I was doing it, Dr. Will Walters of the, the, uh, the 
State Department's medical office was doing it because he was responsible for some of the, the more esoteric uh, evacuation flights. We had folks from our economic bureau were talking to the press because we were coming up with some novel ways of dealing with, with airlines because, of course, the, the worldwide airline industries have slammed shut overnight. And, uh, and some very clever folks in our economic bureau, Hugo Yan in particular, uh, managed to come up with a mechanism that allowed those flights to restart. I remember Hugo and, and Will and, and I and, and others laying all of this out for the press as well. And getting lots of hard questions too. You know, Ian, I'm, I'm thinking as you're telling us these stories that there's this superficial impression about consular affairs, that it is about issuing visas or replacing passports or it, that people don't think of it as glamorous or thrilling work, but all the stories you're telling are the subject of incredible thriller novels or movies or like all of the things that I think would get that get Americans interested in these sorts of issues, but also are the remarkable kind of labor that goes on behind the scenes without a lot of folks knowing about it. Um, but with that in mind, could you tell us more about what is consular affairs like? I mean, you're not always repatriating thousands and thousands of Americans in the middle of a pandemic, but there's all kinds of events where an individual American's crisis becomes the government's crisis or becomes an embassy's crisis in some way as they're working to help them in some capacity. You, you, you're absolutely right. And I'm just looking here for a case. We, we got a, a note from a, an ambassador overseas just yesterday praising a very junior officer, very junior consular officer who had had to deal with, this is somewhere in the former Soviet Union, had to deal with a U.S. citizen who fell desperately ill uh, during a short stopover on a flight in the capital of this country. And, you know, on, on no notice whatsoever, over a long weekend, just pulled out all the stops to make sure this fellow got off the plane, got into the hospital, got the care he needed, and, and will survive. He'll come home. Now, if, if that young officer hadn't been there or hadn't been as on the ball or hadn't been as well-trained, it, it could have all ended very, very badly for, for the for the U.S. citizen who fell ill on the flight. And so what really happened during the repatriation effort is we took all of that and just you know, blew it up by X number of orders of magnitude. And we had people all over the world doing this stuff. I mean, another example uh, from the repatriation crisis is very early on, there was a cruise ship went ashore in Cambodia, it, you know, it went into port in Cambodia. And it was a Holland America cruise ship. And there was the Holland America, the cruise line laid on a charter airplane to fly you know, a bunch of the passengers, including a bunch of U.S. citizens, to Amsterdam and then on to the United States. Well, something happened. They were supposed to be landing in a country. The country denied them landing permission, I guess because they were afraid of COVID or something. So all of a sudden, this plane put down in a particularly challenging part of the world where we have a diplomatic presence, but somewhat difficult relations with the host government. This is a bunch of elderly U.S. citizens who suddenly find themselves in a part of the world where really bad things could have happened. And again, you know, the, the principal officer, a fellow I know, uh, who's like an econ officer, the very small consular section, they all just, they dropped everything and said, okay, that's it. We got to make sure... We take care of these people out at this airport because they're going to be freaked out. And we need to negotiate the departure of this plane as quickly as possible. 
And while the plane sat on the ground for something like seven or eight hours, they all got out of there. They all made it out safely. So it's, you know, so in the best traditions of the foreign service that in a crisis, everybody is an ACS officer. We all, we drop everything we're doing and we deal with helping the American citizen. And I'd love to know from the perspective of the American citizen, um, really just echoing what you just said, Ian, uh, I read in a blog post that you wrote recently that one of the only constants in consular work is crisis, both on a personal and a global scale. So given your experience living abroad and doing this work for so long, what have you learned about how Americans experience a crisis or something just so unexpected as you've been describing, or they just suddenly need help and it's not a situation they've been in before and couldn't even begin to think about what to do next? Um, it's all highly personal, isn't it? <laughs> so let, let me tell you a story from, from my own career. I was serving in, in a country in Central America 20 plus years ago, and it was a horrific situation. There were two young American women, 20-something-year-old American women, both I think they're both there. They both had the same name, Emily, I think it was. And they were murdered. And so we we did our thing. Uh, we made sure the bodies were seen, all that. We got in touch with the families. We told them what had happened and said, if you'd like to come down, you know, we'll assist you with you know getting into the country and we'll we'll, we'll meet you at the airport, et cetera. And they did. Both both sets of parents flew down to deal with this. And the reactions of the two sets of parents couldn't have been more different. One set of parents was almost zen-like. I mean, they were obviously horrified and heartbroken. But it was almost zen-like in their calm. And the others were crying and accusing. and They were, they were expressing their grief through, you know, sort of bitter outpouring. And, you know, you had to deal with both of them. And... Neither one, it was right for them. The way they reacted was right for them. There was no, you know, in some big sense, right way to react to the murder of your child. Um, so, you know, you just sort of, you deal with it that way. You know, you, you, you don't try to prescribe how somebody should be reacting. You take their reaction and you deal with it. You know, I, I really appreciate you sharing the story because a lot of what we have been talking about are these logistics puzzle pieces and, you know, issues to solve in that sense, when there's this whole entire human element and just the emotional toll and what people are going through and the compassion. And, you know, I think I heard you say there might've even been some, you know, blame that needed to be placed and there, you know, there's your team and just being prepared for, for anything. I mean, this is um, very significant. I really appreciate you sharing that example. I, I don't know that it's you know, part of the experience, um, you know, as Lauren said earlier, that people would imagine is part of someone's job. I was thinking, as you were talking, Rachel, what do you put in the job description of uh, a service officer who, who is conducting these sorts of duties? And just the, the incredible breadth of empathy and compassion to ruthless fixer logistics details extraordinaire and you find those so rarely in individuals but so often in the in the diplomatic corps in the united states and many of the folks that i've worked with in the past um so last serious question ian uh and there's so many more we could ask but uh, and this was a tough one so i while i 
in no way wish to see us as a country or as a world have to repeat the experience of COVID-19. Um, there was some remarkable lessons that uh, we in the U.S. government, those in the U.S. government and elsewhere have learned during this crisis and how to react, how to coordinate, collaborate and respond more innovatively. Uh, and I'm curious, as, as we are coming out the other end of this, um, as vaccines go more worldwide, are there lessons that you learned through this work that the State Department could apply in the future, whether it be in repatriation efforts or in, in other sorts of crisis response? Yes. Uh, I want to give a, a shout out and credit here to Karen King, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Overseas Citizen Services. Uh, even as the effort was ongoing and as it began to wound down, wind down, Karen tasked her team to put together a lessons learned, uh, and it, it is comprehensive, and it will be invaluable when the next crisis hits. And it ranges from the organization of the office, and you know, it's almost you know, org chart type stuff, to how we communicate with large numbers of U.S. citizens overseas, how we, we, we break out of some of the models we had in the past and realize that everybody's walking around with a computer in their pocket these days. Everybody can call their congressman from you know, Iquitos uh, or wherever it is. And, and that we need to be nimbler about uh, dealing with them. We need to be able to deal with people, whether it's through social media or one-on-one. -on -one. And so uh, I'm very grateful to that office for having done all that hard work and for coming up with some very, very good ideas. And we'll keep on working on it. It's going to keep changing. We know that the next one, you know, we're going to try not to fall into that trap. They always say the generals are preparing for the last war. We will try, we will try to, be, to prepare for the, the next crisis as opposed to the last war. And I think we're in, we're in pretty good shape in that respect. So, Ian, we'd like to close with more of a fun question for you. Um, American diplomats, as you know, appear in dozens of movies. Uh, what is your favorite portrayal of a diplomat in film? Uh, my, my wife my wife made me watch Madam Secretary. I became so irritated I wouldn't do it anymore. Uh, <laughs> I think part of the reason why Madam Secretary so irritates me is because it doesn't show what a team effort it is. I don't know if you know the show. You know, she's helping car crash victims. She's off negotiating <laughs> this. She's, she's not quite out shooting people, but just about. And yet, as we've been discussing here, it's this detailed, hard, hard work involving dozens, if not hundreds of people. And so uh, I, I guess my, my, my anti-hero would be whatever her name is there. The, the, the trouble with, with, with portraying diplomats in film is that they have to use certain caricatures to make it understandable. I'm using air quotes to the public. And so much of what we do, in fact, involves, you know, a high degree of subtlety or just persistence or patience. And that doesn't play particularly well in films. I was going to say that that, that is an excellent point. I, I was going to amend that my my favorite caricature is uh, Jeffrey Pelt in Hunt for the Red October. He's actually the national security advisor, but uh, his delivery of the lines, have you lost another submarine, Mr. Ambassador, is, is just delightful and in no way realistic. Um, well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us on this recording. I your your stories are suggested to me that you have probably hundreds more hours of stories and incredible insights you should offer us. So I'm so appreciative that you were able to share a little bit about your work over the last year and also recognizing all of your incredible colleagues and in the what they have done to help Americans get home safely in the past year. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to discuss. You're quite right. There's you know hundreds and hundreds of incredible colleagues who brought all their special talents to, to the table 
and then did something even beyond what their their normal uh, ability and talents would called for. It was a uh, it was an amazing team effort, and we'll, and we'll, we keep on doing it day after day. Ian, thank you so much. I loved his very last comment after we had already said thank you and goodbye. It's like that um, whole you walk someone to the elevator after a meeting and that's when you, you know, find out more intel when he um, he said hundreds of colleagues who then did something beyond what their normal talents call for. I just love that. It's such the quintessential in crisis. There is opportunity. I was so happy he said that. And I just imagine the the opportunities that his team had throughout this entire time. And just the the personalized experience of all of those individual Americans who were overseas, it would have been one thing to say, yeah, we booked hundreds of thousands of flights for lots of Americans in different countries and made sure they all got home. It was so much beyond that. All of those Americans and their families were all experiencing an incredibly different COVID-19 crisis, whether they were on vacation, whether they were on a cruise ship, they were suffering from health challenges themselves, they were in the deserts, they were you know, far into the Andes Mountains. It, it, that didn't matter. Like the 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 fact that they were Americans and needed to come home was the important part, and the logistics was just something that these remarkable diplomats and their colleagues had to work through. And honestly, Rachel, as he was talking, I just kept thinking, all of these stories are a novel waiting to happen that no one has any idea that this occurred. Like in in my mind, like yes, there was lots of Americans overseas and they came home. And there's so much incredible drama and I'm sure fear and amazing happy moments in all of that, that Ian and his colleagues helped generate um, and, and did so, as, as he said, beyond both the expectations of what their job descriptions were, but beyond anything we had ever done before in the US government. Oh, yeah. He said that regional model, was there was no way to do that. And just, it was pretty stunning to hear him say how each country had its own and not even just each country, even, you know, areas within might have had its own rules. And so you might be hearing from your family back in the States, hey, so-and-so got out of this country, why can't you? And it's not even the same. And then well, it was Peru where you needed the special um, pilot's license to be able to be at that altitude. I mean, who even knows that this is a thing, right? And it's just an incredible amount of variables that they dealt with. Incredible. When I served in government, we dealt with a lot of embassy security and related crises overseas um, uh, and, and instances where we either had to get hundreds of Americans out or had to plan for those eventualities. And even ones that were far smaller numbers and very contained were such fraught and challenging events. And, and I can't imagine replicating all of the intensity of those on this global scale over the period of time that they managed to operationalize this. I mean, it's it's truly incredible that, and, and you almost want to take all of those people and say, like, could you run at this you know incredibly complex corporation? Could you watch D Day? Could you you know write your own app? Like they seem capable across any number of fronts that um, and, and have found a true calling in this, in both serving Americans, but also in those amazing details that they're able to bring to bear. Yeah, absolutely. Just again, the whole case study on on what happens when this is, we've never been here before, but let's get the right people in the room. And, and he even said that about the task force, which was similar to our doctors at NIH, mm -hmm. got all the brains in the room and just started to figure stuff out. And then I loved, you know, speaking of being in the room when he, he is the first person who I've heard say, um, instead of using the term silver lining of the pandemic, saying that it was a, being, having to go virtual was a saving grace. Yeah. To be able 
work more efficiently. I really like that. To be able to work more efficiently, probably reach out to colleagues who may not have otherwise been able to join a meeting or participate in a briefing session or, or share information. Um, and I, I so appreciated that they started early on to understand the lessons that they could learn out of this and make sure that the next crisis, they were better prepared to adapt and innovate. Um, but what was most striking to me the entire time was not only that he was an amazing storyteller and accomplished so much, but the amount of compassion and empathy that he showed to the people he was working with, but also the Americans who were in these situations. They were all real people to him and not just numbers that they were trying to bring home. Right. It was a large scale operation, but made up of individual people that it just changes everything because your situation is your situation, as he said. This honestly inspired me to think, could I? join the foreign service now? Well, let me go look at their qualifications. <laughs> Would my husband mind moving to Matamoros at this date? Who knows? Uh, let's get him on and ask. Absolutely. Um, but this is just one more of those incredible stories that we hear from public servants who are doing work behind the scenes that we see the impact of, but don't necessarily know the amazing details that they pursue um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, Rachel, thank you so much for helping me pull out these stories and being a part of this process. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Profiles in Public Service was created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our researcher and writer is Emma Jones. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Profiles in Public Service is produced by District Productive. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. See you next time.